All right, everybody. Let's do this. Let's talk about Moana. Okay. iPhone is recording. AirPods Pro. In my ears. Have a cigarette. Left hand. Right hand. Pairing knife. Right hand. Uh, phone. Charger. Seeds. Uh, pairing knife. Have a cigarette. Okay. That's right hand. Left hand. Have a cigarette. Matches chicken sandwich. Keys on my belly, bag, belly. Okay, we got everything we need. That means we can talk about Moana. Okay, Moana, what's the first thing I think of? Moana is a story that Manuel Miranda was involved in about a Hawaiian island. Except it's not really Hawaii. It's like broader Polynesia. But the main character is called Maui, which is an island in Hawaii. Um, let's see. Um, yes, I do have a lighter. My cigarette keeps going out. Okay. So, Maui and Moana are the main characters. This movie, what's good about the movie? The fucking music is so fucking good. The soundtrack is... The official deluxe soundtrack, if you can find it on Apple Music, um, it's so long. It has... Like the full score, which is extremely good. It has like the four or five famous Disney songs. Um, best song is There's Just No Kelly How Far I'll Go. Like, that's Moana's song. She's wants to go to the ocean. Maui's song is What Can I Say Except. You're welcome for the sun, the stars, the moon. So that's his character. Maui is an arrogant demigod who needs to learn humility. Moana is a timid young girl who needs to learn to be a woman. And Maui and Moana go on an adventure to try to save the world. They do save the world. The plot is charming at every moment. Um, way overstimulating. Like, Disney is, um, according to Victoria, one of the things that Disney is interested in is sort of um, unseparating, like, the aspects of their media that have traditionally been separated. So they, Disney has always made media for boys and media for girls. But back 
back in the day? Like, yeah, that's such a good question. Like, when Walt made Snow White, who did he make it for? I mean, a horrible answer is that that son of a bitch made it for himself. He only ever did what he wanted to do. That's one of the reasons he's so famous. Um, so he made Snow White because he wanted to, but Snow White is obviously a movie for girls. So, um, if you're wondering what's so fucked up about Disney, I think that's the foundation, is that Walt Disney was fascinated by film, music, musicals, women, fairy tales, film, money, animation, Jews, violence, America, money, power, union-busting, family, patriarchy, family, no union here, patriarchy, family. So that's Disney, patriarchy, family. Um, now Disney is trying to do, like, they're trying to do feminist patriarch family. It's not going to work because the feminism that they're trying to inject into their company is, to say the least, fucking disingenuous, to say the most, um, deeply insulting and revolting. Uh, what does that have to do with Moana? Well, Moana... I'm going to call Moana the third and a half non-white princess. Um, we're going to call Pocahontas half of a white princess because Pocahontas was, like, native according to the story. But Pocahontas's story was actually John Smith's story. John Smith is the princess in Pocahontas, obviously. He's the one that learns. He's the one that changes. But in the 90s, nobody was ready for, like, a gay boy princess who falls in love with a native girl and decides that white people are evil. And that he should stop being an explorer and go back to England with his girlfriend, which is, I believe, the plot of Pocahontas 2. Um, I think it is true that the woman Pocahontas did die in England. Um, so I guess that part is true. Uh, Pocahontas is a native princess who saved a white man, then went to England and died, which is, I mean, honestly, that's a good story. That's the story of being a woman in America. But, like, I mean, that's why Pocahontas is such a bad movie. Like, that's why people fucking hate it, is because it's an excellent princess movie about John Smith. But the text of the film is, like, 
the gaze is on as on Pocahontas, um, the gaze of the film, the gaze of John Smith, the gaze of white male animators at Disney who are, ugh, God, the fucking animators, God, they're sort of creepy, aren't they? They're all, quote, grumpy old men. That's like, that's their name for themselves. Grumpy old men. And their job is to draw titillating pictures of little girls. Um, I mean, I think that's why they called themselves grumpy old men, was because they wanted to clarify that they were not horny little pervs. But... If you've ever known an old man, you know that they are all also horny little pervs. They are both. Ask every American president. Um, yeah. So, that's why Pocahontas sucks. It's not because it's a bad movie. It's a very good movie. I think it's a very good movie. I like that movie. But it was a very bad movie in terms of, like, being a narrative that is at all useful or therapeutic for women or Native people. So, that's a failure of the movie. So, Moana is like, let's try again. Um, what in God's green earth made the Disney corporation decide that they should oh fucking sweet teach yourself swift second edition c++ classes and data structures these are the books you need if you want to be an ios developer a genetic switch higher organisms Damn. Songs in Ordinary Time. This is my free little library. The Reader? I want all these books. Man, the library was closed, but the free little library is open. Oprah's Book Club. Songs in Ordinary Time. A novel. Okay, that's a good novel. Let's see. The Reader. Now a major motion picture. I'm going to read that book instead. It's shorter, and I'm obsessed with... Kate Winslet. Um, <laughs> Alien Glow Eyes. I'm going to leave this here. This is obviously for a child. Disappearing Into View. A novel by Andrew K. Stone. Stone illuminates the infinite human capacity for evil, compassion, and forgiveness. Nope, I don't need that. I'm aware of that. Okay. Um, biology. <laughs> B-U-I dot ology. Truth and lies about why we buy. Yeah, I'm going to keep that one because um, a big thing I do when I'm manic is use my credit cards. So I should. The reader and biology. I'm in a very literal mood. Dinosaurs before dark. Yeah, we're going to take that one. Genetic switch we're going to leave here because... 
The first edition of a genetic switch published in 1986 to worldwide acclaim addressed one of the central questions in biology. How does an organism use its genes to direct its growth? The text draws on the author's 25 years of research on regulation in phase. Phase. That's a Greek letter. I'm going to go with lambda. Phage lambda. Lambda. Phage lambda providing a paradigm of how cells select which genes to switch off and on. Ugh, lambda, and extends the treatment to consider gene regulation in higher organisms. Three chapters describe the principles of gene regulation in lambda, and the fourth chapter outlines the experimental basis of the major conclusions. Two new chapters assess how far gene control in eukaryotes can be considered in terms of the lambda model, and what elaborations of the principles established with Lambda are necessary to explain more complex programs of gene expression. Mark Patashna is a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology at Harvard University. So that's why we're not going to read this book, because um, Harvard professors are looking for the solution to trauma inside of our genes. Um, That's probably fair. People brought these books because they hate them. No Contest, A Case Against Competition, Why We Lose in Our Race to Win by Alfie Cohn. This is a book that somebody wanted to read that didn't read. Or at least that's why I bring books to the library. I bring books to the library when I cannot stand anymore the fact that... Andrew K. Stone, All Flowers Die. Wait, there's like five copies of this in here. This must be a local person. Born in Rhode Island, K. Stone studied communications at Boston University. He worked for NBC Television before relocating to Los Angeles, where he sold a script to the hit television comedy The Golden Girls. Stone now lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Okay, I think that this is the man who donated a lot of these books. Uh, he lives in Cambridge. Uh, Somebody here went to Harvard. What we have on our hands is a Swift programmer who went to Harvard. So I'm taking his Swift books, and I'm taking in this novel that he wrote, Andrew K. Stone. And I'm taking this book called The Leader, which I want to read. And I'm taking this book called Biology to learn how to stop spending my money. And I'm taking this book, Dinosaurs Before Dark, because I want it. So those are the books that I'm taking home. Let's see. There are one, two, three, four, five, six of them. That is because I am manic, and I find the number six soothing. Oh, no. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Oh no! Oh no! Oh no! Am I allowed to take these books? Yeah, I'm gonna take all the books that I want, and I'll just bring them back later. Mendy, the art of henna. Yeah, that would be so cool. The boy who saved baseball. Um. Orange. Perfect answers. 
All right, we're going to take perfect questions and perfect answers. Jesus Christ, that's a little bit on the nose for me. Here is a Pantone book called Orange. The Art of Henna Body Painting. We're going to put that back because I am a tattoo person now, so I'm getting a tattoo tomorrow. I don't need to learn how to paint henna. Um, we're going to bring two Magic Schoolhouse books, Magic Treehouse books, because... The first one is number one, and the second one is number 34, and I'm really excited to see, like, how they, those two changed. Biologies. No, putting this book back. I don't want to read this book, Biology. The Reader. I do want to read this book, The Reader. So I'm going to bring The Reader and All Flowers Die. Those are novels. I'm bringing the Swift books because I want to learn how to program. Um... To be clear, I studied computer programming in college. I know how to program in like C and Scheme, but I don't know how to program in Swift. Um, dinosaurs before dot. Notice how quiet I got when I told you, don't worry, I do know about computers. I'm alone in the park right now. I'm alone in the corner farm. And... Oh no, there's a little backpack here that somebody lost that says adventure on it. And um, it has a bunch of diapers in it. Um, yeah, so I'm here at the corner farm. They grow food for this Christopher House School. Okay, corner. Um, oh, <laughs> that's also true. I'm also like a block from my old apartment that I hated. So I'm just a little jumpy is all, but um, I also <laughs> feel that it's important for you to know that I am going to learn Swift for fun and have a degree in computer science studies. <laughs> like, I wasn't a full computer science degree. My degree was in fine art and computer science, but oh. let's see. I passed the classes that I had to. Um, what did I learn in the computer science department? Well, I learned what a computer was. I mean, that's the main thing I learned. Um, there were like two courses of programming study at Yale. One of them was an intro class, like for humanities students who were interested. Um, and they learned Java. So those kids like learned to build Java toys, but those were, that was like an elective course where the computer science department kind of squatted all the, all the kids and mostly all the girls who they didn't think were serious enough for computer science. Um, the main track of computer science. Oh no. The guy who was the dean of computer science reminds me so much of John Syracuse. Maybe that's why I love John so much. He was angry all the time, but so calm. <laughs> and I was like, so soothing. Like, I was like a bitchy little white girl who wanted to study computer science. And I was 
not taking it seriously. I was just like having fun and drinking vodka and kissing PhD students that I shouldn't be. And I was faffing around the computer science department. I was like the only woman there. When I look back on it, it probably was a deeply comforting place for me to be because I was transmasculine, but I didn't know it yet. And that Dean, although he said very cruel things to me that he shouldn't have, like, um, so, so my, my degree, the formal, the formal major is computing and the arts. Um, I was like, the third or fourth person to graduate with that major from Yale. Um, the first was a woman named Nosley, who was like, so cool. I didn't even think of her as being like, the same gender or species as me. Like, she was just, oh man, she was fucking cool. <laughs> Um, and she studied fashion, um, which I know how to make clothes to. Um, I started making clothes for myself in high school. Um, let's see. Computing and the arts. Yeah. I've already mentioned on my Instagram somewhere that, um, I almost failed my um, my senior project. Uh, there, that's because my thesis had two parts. There was the computing part and the arts part. I promise I'm getting back to computer science. Um, the arts component, that's the part that I almost failed because my art teachers were not paying attention. They they were annoyed that the computing and the arts students were in the art building because they weren't real art students. And they were they were also like frustrated with me, just like the guy at computer science was. But and I'm gonna say this slowly because I can feel the red hot anger gathering in my chest the people at the Yale School of Fine Arts are fucking pieces of shit they're all shitty it's a horrible school they manipulate and exploit all of their students they make them pay for their MFAs when the pandemic hit and the literal MFA students who were paying for the joy and pleasure of making art in the basement of a prestigious school with their colleagues. They all had to go home, including an artist I know, a trans artist I know. Yale sent them all home and expected them all to pay their fucking tuition. Now, there's two ways that you pay for an MFA. You pay for it with your own personal debt or you pay for it with your fucking parents' money. And the shitty 
fucking shitty fuck shit fuck shit thing about Yale and all the fucking schools like Yale is that there is an obvious, obvious, like rigid economic caste system of rich people and not rich people. And the horrible shit about it is that the truly rich people taught their children to pretend like they're not rich because that's the classy thing to do. Um, that did not jive well with my middle-class upbringing because I would ask them pointed questions about their money and they would get so angry at me. And a friend of mine just reminded me that one time I was in a dorm room just I mean, I have to imagine I was yelling because I was so angry. Who knows what my voice sounded like. But I was yelling at Julian, my friend, my poor friend Julian, trying to get him to understand what it meant that his parents were extremely rich. And I didn't understand anything about his family, you know? Like, I didn't understand anything about his family. And, huh. oh, I'm almost home. Um, oh, good. This, <laughs> this is a woman's library here. This is much more calming. Um, God, men are so aggressive. Um, this is all pink. Pretty and plaid by Jen Lancaster. The Tennis Partner by Abraham Verges. Caldweller by Dorothy Allison. A private collection from Kate Bryan. Um, advanced praise for the kid. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it's a mix in here. Oh, do we have a joke about the moon? Aliana reaches for the moon. A STEM, a STEAM book for aspiring scientists. Okay. Um, let's see. Hercules, the Harbor Tug. Um, these are cute books. <gasps> Grendel. Oh, Grendel. Oh. Oh. The first and most terrifying monster in English literature. From the great epic Beowulf tells his own side of the story in a book William Gass calls one of the finest of our contemporary fictions. And this um, is a picture of... A person crying out in pain, and everybody is scared of them. So we're going to read that book. That's a book for right now. Let's see. All fathers, all flowers die. That's probably not a good novel, but it's very touching. But I found it, and I wish Andrew Stone the best. Okay, bestseller, 30% off, now a major motion picture, starring Kate Winslet and Ralph fine okay now both of these books are written by men 
one of them has a monster on the front who is crying out in pain. One of them has a woman on the front who is Kate Winslet who is quietly in pain. So I think these are my pain books. Fast Food Nation, The Dark Side of the All-American Meal. I'm going to read about this. I'm going to read this book and see. Let's see. Let's try to guess. This book is written by someone named Eric Schlosser. I'm going to check this book to see if it says anything about the culture of black franchise ownership at McDonald's. And if it doesn't, that means I'm smart. Okay, a savage servility slides by on Greece. Oof. What we eat. The golden archers. Trade journals. Food technology. The American way. The founding fathers. Okay, nope, this is a good book. Um, I wanted to make sure that this was a book about the economy and culture of fast food and not about the food of fast food. Um... Obviously, <laughs> people shouldn't eat fast food if they can help it. It's bad. <laughs> it's bad for you. It's bad for you. Um, okay, so we picked out new books. We're on the way home. I'm obviously having a manic episode. I'm very distractible. Um, right now... I'm on the corner of St. Louis and what is the cross road here? It's not Wrightwood. It's one block north of Wrightwood. There's no sign. Um, oh, Bernard. No, Altgeld. We're on Altgeld and St. Louis. Yeah, so keep going north. Um, okay. What do I see? A beautiful Chicago flag. The orange door that I like in our neighborhood. A green and orange. <laughs> the green and orange house that is extremely well painted. But I would not choose. I, it's got that, like, amazing, like, Victorian painted, like, wooden details. What a weird house. Um, Beautiful. Brick detail plus Victorian trim that is painted. Um, that's a real mashup of like what I love about Chicago architecture and what I love about um, rural Victorian Michigan architecture. Oh, here's one. This is just this is a Michigan house. This is a probably a four thousand square foot home in the middle of Logan Square. Just start there. A single residence. It's so big. Yeah, single residence. Oof. Who lives there? That's so big. Um, yeah, those Victorian houses, there are huge mansions in our neighborhood. And, like, I couldn't imagine affording them. But even more than that, I couldn't afford, I couldn't, like, afford to clean them. Uh, so, oh, here's a better one. Two five, 
I'm not gonna read the address. Um, two five something. Yeah, this is very similar to that other house, protected by abode. Um, this is a much smaller house, but it's still huge. But um, more contemporary. I like the design better. Um, two flats. Hmm. Okay. Here we have, I think, a controversial house. This is an entirely brick building. It's very similar to that one I told you about that has the Victorian details, but there are no Victorian details here. Um, they were simplified or removed, and the entire facade has been painted white. Um, I can't blame them because I really hate this dingy yellow brick. I know that it's very essentially Chicagoan, but if I bought a brick house in my neighborhood, I would want to paint it. <laughs> it's so dirty. Um, I guess maybe I would start to, with trying to clean it, but cleaning brick is so expensive. And I think what they have here is some of that really nice mineral paint that keeps your bricks healthy. But they've painted it all white. Their address is like those are rich people who bought their house within the last five years. And that's a very big bummer if you are in the neighborhood and you're not in a position to buy a house. Uh, oh, this is this is equally big, but this house is much cozier. It has it is also painted. It has vinyl on the front. Hate vinyl, but it's a much cozier look for that house. Um. Yeah, vinyl siding on the whole thing. Cheesy, cheesy wooden doors. So, nicely upkept house, but not screaming at you like I bought my house on Instagram, which I think is like our alderman Carlos um, sometimes makes fun of. I think I think he used the phrase gentrification, gentrification gray, um, which I think is like a really beautiful image of gentrification from a man who I think really does understand the difference between like the working class queer white kids that live in his ward and the shitty rich people that live in his ward and the literal fucking mayor who lives in his ward. Um, Carlos is a socialist. He's one of our DSA endorsed explicitly socialist Alderman in Chicago, we have a few. Um, a big part of what you have to do in Chicago to make Chicago better is you have to harass your alder person because the alder people of Chicago are a real mixed bag. <laughs> they uh, let's put Carlos on the top, and then on the bottom we'll put everybody who was arrested for federal crimes and still won their election because although that makes you like a real piece of shit um to commit like i think most of it is like federal finance crimes <laughs> taking illegal bribes instead of perfectly legal bribes 
like the rest of Chicago. Um, but it's funny, a lot of those older people, they like, they represent, they represent wards that nobody cares about in Chicago. And the people who live in those wards know it. People who vote, vote for the older men. I don't know what to tell you, man. Old people vote. Get over it. <laughs> like, I have to imagine that, like, that's what happens in the elections for older people is the old people vote and the young people don't. <laughs> and um, in Chicago, what that means is that we have a lot of extremely corrupt politicians. Um, our last election was to elect the man who would be king after Rahm Emanuel. Oof, how to talk about Rahm. People hate him. He is the antimatter Obama. He is Obama who is not Obama. He is a cipher. We can be mad at Rahm because it would be too painful to be mad at Obama. It doesn't it doesn't hurt that Ron was a deeply, deeply corrupt politician who massively covered up um, publicly sanctioned murders of black people. That was a real, real, real bummer. But, like, it's not the only problem in Chicago. Uh, the main problem in Chicago is that there's nobody here to stand up to the Pritzkers. Like, who's going to stand up to a man who bought the governorship? Like, how would you even stand up to him? First of all, he's a Democrat. Second of all, he's a billionaire. Third of all, he's a white man. Fourth of all, he's managing a functional government during a pandemic. Fifth of all... Thank God he won. Sixth of all, I genuinely hope he dies very soon. Like, in a painful way. Like, that's what I want. Um, who's the mayor now? It's not important. <laughs> like, the mayor now is somebody that we elected because we were mad at Rom, because we were mad at Obama, because we were mad at our older people, because we were mad at our parents, because we were mad at the police, because the police murder black people in Chicago, and they get away with it every single time. And even if they don't get away with it, I want you to hear me when I say people die mysteriously. They do. <laughs> you stand up for the police in Chicago, you don't live long. Ask Fred Hampton. Ask everybody who came to Chicago in 1968 to complain about the Democrats. Ask Mayor Daley, who in 1968 watched with glee as his beloved CPD beat and killed teenagers in the streets of Chicago watched with glee as that happened from the safety of the convention hall 
But, and here's where we get back to hidden masculine anger. The day of the convention, the day that the Democrats lost control of the floor because they didn't know how to stop the Vietnam War without losing an election. And because good people in America seem to die mysteriously. Um, it's not a mystery. White men shoot them with guns. But um, the exact legal terms of those murders um, confuse and terrify people. So they lost control. Um, they lost control of the war. They lost control of the convention. They lost control of the city. Um, Daly didn't give a shit because he knew that he hadn't lost control of the city. The police were out there murdering people on his behalf. Like, he did not feel unsafe at the convention hall. But he did feel very angry. He felt angry because his beloved Chicago Police Department were killing teenagers, unarmed teenagers in the streets. And he felt angry because the Vietnam War wouldn't stop. And crucially, and here's the secret, he felt very angry because a close friend of his had just had his son murdered in Vietnam. And nobody will ever know who killed him. I mean, it was obvious the U.S. government is the one that killed him, but, like, who pulled the trigger? And what was it like when he died? And how far away from home was he? And were his friends around him? Or much worse than that, did he die afraid and confused at the hands of his enemy who he had been trying to anger, confuse, and murder? So this young boy died surrounded by other young boys who were all confused, scared, and being forced to murder each other. And Daly knew that that was happening. I mean, he always knew that was. So, yeah, he knew what the war was. He, um, I mean, he knew what the war was when the war was announced. Um, but that day he decided that it was too much, that the war had to end. And he decided that he hated her, her, Hubert Humphrey. He decided that he hated this man who was handpicked by LBJ to succeed him and control the Democratic Party. And, uh... Daly said, LBJ, I hear you think you control the Democrats. I hear you think that you're going to choose what happens next. But I'm here to tell you that I'm going to choose what happens next. And Richard Nixon is going to win the election. 
in this state. And it's not important who voted for Nixon and who voted for Humphrey. What's important is that Richard Daley decided that he didn't want Herbert Humphrey to win the election. And Hubert Humphrey decided in a million little ways that he was okay with what was happening, um, that he could trust his boss, that he could do what America needed. And if you want to see somebody, if you want to see a confused politician who is just trying to end the Vietnam War, I suggest you check out the CNN documentary 1968, which is what I am quoting extemporaneously from. Um, probably getting some of the facts wrong. Um, yeah, it really helped me understand how all the different violences of the 60s fit together into one brutal colonialist, racist, misogynist death machine. And um, modern activists don't want to believe that we're in the same situation, but we are. And our problems are much worse than their problems. Their problem was a war that they could stop anytime they wanted. Our problem is an economy that we can stop anytime we want. A whole economy. A whole economy. That's me smashing my skateboard around, thinking about all the dead people who died for no reason this year because we refused to stop our economy. Um, but we wouldn't stop our economy to save the literal planet and everyone on it. So there's no reason to think that we would stop it on behalf of just like a few million weak old people. Um, and a few million dead poor people, like, that's nothing, that's nothing to get upset about, it's nothing to scream about, that's something that should make you feel quiet and scared, <sighs> but I don't feel scared right now, because I'm manic, um, I don't really ever feel scared except for when I'm in pain. Um, I'm not conscious of feeling afraid. But I obviously am afraid all the time. I live in a country that wants to kill me. Um, right now I'm using an iPhone to talk to you. My iPhone was bought for me by my father. My iPhone is an iPhone 10s, I think. Yeah. It's black. It was built by slaves to enrich Tim Cook, who is a brave, terrifying, murderous gay man. But like, I don't know Tim Cook. Tim Cook doesn't want to listen to me. But I don't want to listen to Apple journalism anymore unless they're willing to admit that Tim Cook is a mass murderer.
and the white guys who get paid to talk about Apple are not prepared to admit to themselves that Steve Jobs' ghost is a demon that haunts everybody, and it's an evil demon. Steve Jobs died. Um, Steve Jobs was afraid when he died. Steve Jobs died of a disease he couldn't control, and he spent his whole life trying to control everything. And he was a really cruel, cruel person who was very kind to some of the people in his life. And he built an amazing company that really saved a lot of lives, you know. Um, I wouldn't really probably be with my partner if I didn't have an iPhone. Um, I met her on my phone. I talked to her on my phone. My photos of her are on my phone. I'm, I'm right now. I am cradling of um, the books that I picked up. The main one says the Great Lakes State, Michigan. That is a book that I'm going to send to a baby who is being born this year. Um, I don't want to send the baby a scared feeling, you know, but I want the baby to know that it's scary out here. And nobody in Apple journalism is willing to talk about what they're afraid of. They never talk about what they're afraid of. They talk about what makes them angry. Um, Republicans and Microsoft, they talk about what makes them feel sexy, their families and their iPhones. They talk about what makes them feel powerful, their apps and their companies and the stupid shit they buy with their stupid fucking blood money. Um, I don't talk about their wives very much because it is a boundary that they have. Um, some of their wives have just become famous themselves. Um, some of their wives have decided that they don't want to be famous. Um, my girlfriend does not want to be famous. She will not really be on the podcast unless she wants to be. Um, but she will be very present on this podcast the same way the lives and families of Apple journalists just sort of float in the background, you know, the thing they can't stop talking about, the thing they never talk about authentically or honestly or out of a place of, like, fear and uncertainty. Um, they don't do that because they're dads. And if you watch the film Moana, you know that the best satire of a dad is a man singing a loud song called You're Welcome about the fact that he made the stars and the moon and the sky. And when I look at this book, The Great Lakes State of Michigan, you know, I want to give this to the baby because Michigan is something that will be there for the baby. Michigan will be there. I don't know what it'll look like, but the baby can go there. And Michigan is a place that makes me feel happy and safe. And so um, this has a little sticker on it that says, read it and pass it on. Bernie's Book Bank. Um, I don't know if that's Bernie Sanders or not. Um, but 
it certainly looks like it could be. Um, we're going to call this the epilogue. Maybe this will be how the how the episodes go. I get angry and then I do a happy epilogue. This is so fucking funny. Let's read AV2, added value, audiovisual. I mean, find the code on page two of the book. Enter the code. Explore the media-enhanced book. Here we have a QR code, an ISBN number, a barcode, smart board compatible content. The Active Classroom by Promethean Friendly. AV2 works with all interactive whiteboards. So, added value, audiovisual. Okay, so this is a gimmick to make this book um, feel more valuable. Seems like, oh, it's a 52 book set that you can get. Um, yeah, this is like a school product, which is why it would be. Um, they've gone through a lot of effort to make sure that you know you can use it with whatever bad software you have. Oh boy, oh boy, this they they have a computer on here that is obviously um, an old. <laughs> it's obviously an old Thunderbolt display, but it does not have any. Um, doesn't have any markings on it um and then the other computer here is um <laughs> a whiteboard what do you guys think do you think that the whiteboards the, <laughs> the digital whiteboards do you think that they work well um is letting me into the house huh oh um, so we're going to be quiet because Victoria's on a phone call. So let's review what books we brought home. The Great Lakes State, Michigan. That's a kid's book for a kid. The Orange Pantone book, that's a kid book for me. Kid books for me. Two novels and two kid books for me. Two spiritual books for me. One book about fast food. So, um, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight books for me, one book for the baby. Nine books total. Nine is a great number. Let's pull a tarot card. I assume that when I'm less manic, it will be easier for me to stop these recordings. Until then, let's pretend like this is a cool podcast that has cool segments. Like, I bought these Heelys on eBay. That's something that I'm staring at right now. Or I wrote the word purple on my desk to make me feel better. <sighs> That's true. Or I painted this keyboard, this Apple Magic Keyboard 1. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. 
No wonder the boys at Apple don't be sensitive. Have you ever listened to them when they try? It's very annoying. Um, this door doesn't really want to shut properly. I think it's just because it's too heavy now. Um, catnip mouse. Um, whetstone to sharpen my whittling knives. A marmite jar from a friend. I put a lightning cord inside of it. A candle that I bought that I melted a bunch of different candles into. Water bottle from the Dill Pickle Food Co-op. Freeze-dried raspberries from Target that we're going to use to eat and have fun and also to flavor and color a more color than flavor to add color to some frosting for a cake that my girlfriend is going to make me at some point in the future where is my girlfriend right now my girlfriend is in our bedroom she's on the phone I don't know who she's talking to, but she doesn't usually talk on the phone unless she's talking to somebody important. And she said, I'm on my call, which is not what she says when she's talking to a friend. When she's talking to a friend, she says, oh, hey, I'm on the phone. Um, and then she usually tells me who she's speaking with because I usually know. And then I usually say hi to them. Um, for instance, last night we spoke with her mother. Um, who is a dear, 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 dear friend to me. Um, here is my cat. My cat <laughs> is very affected by my manic moods, poor thing. Um, you really can't relax unless I'm relaxed, because I adopted her when she was seven weeks old. Um, let's see. Oh, we have some salmon-flavored snacks here. And I am trying to help my cat deal with my mood swings without causing her too much extra stress. Because I do think that, I mean, she's a cat. She's got a very resilient stress system. She's a adrenaline junkie. She's a, a powerful huntress. Um, but I'm also trying to give her toys. Let's see. She loves chewing my apple cords. And I really don't seem to be able to stop her. So I'm trying to give her her own ones. What I have here is <laughs> an apology mouse. <laughs> Not even the, 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 the one for which the apology was made. Um, this absurd circle mouse. Um, this is a later version of it where they added like aqua plastic and obvious directionality um oh i hadn't noticed this i think that this is probably like apple usb mouse um this has a this has actually has a ball in it i don't know when it was last time i had a mouse with a ball in it um i don't know if it still works when i plug it in to try to use it it doesn't work Oh, interesting. The 
This mouse was never used very much because it's very, very clean. Model number M4848. M4848. I'm not going to look that up right now because the only little computer I have access to right now is my desktop and it is a very old iMac and it's very slow. And when I try to use it, I have to be very patient. Um, and having to be very patient usually makes me feel very frustrated. So I don't want to be patient and frustrated. So I'm just going to put this mouse on the desk. Taking my socks off. <sighs> this is a cool segment called I don't know when to turn off this recording. Um this is we're getting closer. Now my socks and shoes are off. I'm wiggling my toes. I am wiggling my ankles. Uh, thank you to my toes and ankles. For carrying my fat ass around the neighborhood. You sandwich that I got, which is very gross. Gross, gross, gross looking. My paring knife, a mask that I fucking hate, a cigarette. Ugh. God. Okay. Alright, let's see what we can make of this tarot reading. I have a chicken sandwich smashed in my pocket. A fucking mask that I fucking hate. A knife that I'm not allowed to use to do anything fun. This is just a paring knife. I don't, I can't even use it to, to carve or whittle. So we've got food that I don't want to eat, a knife I don't want to use, and a mask I don't want to wear. Now, at an earlier stage in my mania, I would have just stuffed these things in a drawer. Literally. That is what I do when I'm manic. I gather objects that have intense emotional meetings. I, I hold them together to try to keep myself sane, such as the feeling of being frustrated and the feeling of being patient. And I tried to control my brain. And for most of my life, that has just expressed itself as pretty garden variety self-hate. Um, but I was raised as a woman. I was raised as a fatter than average woman. I was raised as a uglier than average woman. I don't know if that's true. I never felt very pretty, but I had... Certainly had some things going for me, such as the fact that I was white and blonde, and so people didn't um, hurt me as much as they probably would have if I had even been a white child with dark hair. Um, Perry knife. I'm going to put this back by the door because that's where I got it from. I'm going to put it with an orange so that I can actually use it to eat an orange later. This is a big part of my mania recovery, is putting things back. Here's my shitty, shitty mask that I hate. Put it back in our mask box, which is part of our life now. I'm going to throw away this cigarette because even though it's full of organic hemp, I just don't want to deal with it. 
So that's that. Um, let's see. I'm going to throw this away. This is a little seed packet from a forget-me-not. Um, it's called, let's see. This is, oh, I remember this. This is very funny. Okay, first of all, Chinese forget-me-not. Um, <laughs> seeds origin, Netherlands. <laughs> um, so, seeds from the, the, the once and future king of capitalism, the Netherlands and China. Look up the tulip bubble. First, first real estate bubble that ever happened was in the Netherlands, and it was about tulips. 100, okay, here we go. I'm going to read this whole packet to you. This is something that I got from Target, and it is really, really funny. Okay. 100% natural seeds from the company Buzzy. Now, I looked them up, and what they do is they make these little seed packets that people can use as party favors. So it's like instead of giving people, like, a plastic um, – instead of giving people, like, a plastic bubble container, you give them these seeds so that – they they still take them home and throw them away, but it's better vibes. And there's less plastic, which is good. We definitely need to make less plastic. But we also need to learn some lessons. And this seed packet is teaching us the wrong lessons. So here's what it says. Buzzy, 100% natural seed. Come get buzzy with me. Do you feel... You feel, do you feel like you're just buzzing from room to room like a beautiful little buzzy bee, definitely not like a terrified hummingbird, and you are so busy planning your wedding, and you're marrying a man who is pretty abusive to you, but you want to marry him anyway. Fair enough. That's a very common experience. Um... Buzzy, 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 100% natural seeds, guaranteed to grow. Now that's, now this is the lesson that we should not be learning, that 100% natural seeds are guaranteed to grow. <sighs> Nothing is guaranteed to grow, not even this little fig plant that is in my bathroom. Oh, my plants do know that it is spring, though. They all did an enormous, like, I have to imagine they all died because they were so sad for me. Um, but who knows why they really died. But there's no such thing as a seed that is guaranteed to grow. If you want to read about what they're doing, you can go to buzzyseeds.com. Um, plant fearlessly. That's the lesson that you should learn. Right. But they have to soften it on the front by saying that there are some things in life that are guaranteed. And that's a lie. But it's a lie that is very friendly if you are getting married. Um, why do I care about Target? I'm obsessed with Target because Target is where my old bosses made all their money. 
and I am obsessed with why it is true that people who think that they are Democrats or socialists or, God forbid, radical socialists keep buying the card game Cards Against Humanity. Why do they keep buying that bad card game that was made by those bad people? I don't know. They want it. Um, it's funny. It says Cards Against Humanity on the front. The best joke is on the front of the box. It's very funny. Um, are you nervous about crimes against humanity? Come here. We have jokes instead. Um, here's when that box stops being funny. It stops being funny when the people who own that box fire you in the middle of a global pandemic, in the middle of a health crisis that they said they would help you with. That's why I'm fascinated by Target. Um, I try to be fascinated instead of angry, but the truth is I am so angry. I'm so angry. Who am I most angry at? Well, number one on my list is Max Tepkin. It is truly his fault. He is um, the Death Eater of Cards Against Humanity. Um, he was the worst person there. Um, and he took the blame for everything that went wrong. Um, by, that, by that I meant that, like, I would imagine that a person like Max internalizes the idea that everything that happened at his company was his fault. So here are some things that happened at his company. The first thing that happened was they raised a lot of money and made a card game. Um, what was the next thing that happened? Um, they printed their card game using slave labor. That was the next thing that happened. Then they shipped it using slave labor, and then they shipped it again using labor-compromised American laborers. <laughs> labor-compromised. <laughs> Jesus Christ. They probably sent it using FedEx, <laughs> which is not a union shop. Um, and they knew that. They picked it because it was cheaper. Uh, they didn't care about, at that time, they didn't care about who they shipped with, so who knows who they used. But by the end, they cared. I know that because I ran their shipping department. Um, what happened next? Um... Max hired all of his friends in 2010 or thereabouts. And then everything went to shit. Um, let's see. And then he sold his company Black Box to a different company. I worked for Black Box. He sold that company to people who said they would take care of me, and then they fired me. Pandemic. So that's the straight line from 
Max being um, a very bad person who is in a lot of pain to me being a much better person than him and still in pain and in much more pain than him. to die. It makes me want to scream. It makes me so angry. But there's nothing I can do about that. Max's money is his. And he is going to have to decide what to do with his money now that he is disgraced. Um, I don't think he cares what he's going to do with his money. He doesn't really care about his money, even though it's the only thing he has that could help anybody. So what's Max going to do next? Jesus. I would be very surprised if we hear from Max publicly again. I think Max is learned the lesson that being famous is not the same as having friends and that hiding your secrets is not the same as forgiving yourself and that forgiving yourself is not the same as making amends to the people that you hurt and that making amends to people that you hurt is not the same as not hurting them. So the truth is that there's no place you can go to get away from the people you hurt. That's why you have to forgive people. It's because forgiving people is the only way to take away the pain of their not being forgiveness. But you don't have to forgive anybody that you don't want to. You sure as shit do not have to forgive anybody that you don't want to. And I don't forgive Max. It's not my job to forgive him. It's his friend's job to forgive him for the things he did to me. And it's my job to forgive myself for hurting the people that I love. That's my job. But I can't do that because I'm in a manic episode. So instead, I've made myself some chicken and some peppers. And now we truly have come to an ending because I cannot continue to talk while eating my lunch. It's just like it's hard to eat when you're breathing and when you're smoking. Just like it's hard to talk when you're breathing, smoking, or eating. That's part of what we like about smoking and eating and breathing. It's very hard to hate yourself when you're doing those things because they are acts of self-care, to breathe, to eat, to love, to walk, to keep going, to smoke, to cry, 
to laugh, to jam, to scream. Those are the things that you can do for yourself. But here's the thing, everybody. It's a pandemic, and I'm sick of doing things for myself. I don't want to eat this food. I'm very depressed. I don't want to drink any water. I'm too bored. I don't want to take my medicine because I'm too scared. I don't want to call my friends in case I did something wrong and they're going to yell at me. I don't want to call my family for the same reason. And I don't want to bother my girlfriend because she's on a phone call. So that's why I'm talking to you. So I have a spoon that's too big, but I can at least use a spoon that I like. Okay, here's a wooden spoon, a bamboo spoon, a paper bowl, my lunch, my iPhone, my kitty. My kitty. Um, All right, everyone. Go eat something.